Thanks for tuning in today. You're listening to the official podcast of First Alliance Church in Great Falls, Montana, creating passionate followers of Christ. Today's message is from lead pastor John Reese. When I was growing up, I had an overweight dachshund named Sam. And Sam had a number of psychological problems, uh, probably some of them due to the fact that Sam was a female dachshund named Sam, but uh, Sam loved me, and she was always eager to greet me when I came home, except when she was feeling guilty about something. Whenever she did something wrong, she had this really kind of interesting things she would do, she would go into my bedroom and where the sheets kind of hang down beside the bed there, she would stick her head underneath the sheets and her big fat body would be out in the room where I could see her, but her head would be under the sheets and she would think she was concealed. (laughs) This is true. And, And I would walk into the room and I'd see this fat body sticking out from under the bed and minus its head. And I would say, Sam, are you here? And she wouldn't move. She would act like she wasn't there. She would just lie there motionless in full view of me, hoping that I would not see her and go away. That's what we do with God. You know, we think if God's out of sight, he's out of the picture. So we put a box over our head and act like he's not there. You know, I got, a mess. I got some news for you people. Whether you see God or not, he still sees you. After David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, he immediately set out to cover up his actions. And and he was kind of successful at what he did to hide his sin because eventually he had Uriah. He first tried to bring him home so he from the battle he was on so he would look like he had slept with Bathsheba, and he had gotten her pregnant, but when that didn't work, he had him killed in the battle against the Ammonites. He reasoned, you know, if Uriah is eliminated before he finds out about Bathsheba, who's going to know what I did? Because who else is going to know who, that it wasn't Uriah that got Bathsheba pregnant? So David felt like his sin was covered. You know, except for just a very small group of people, the the servants he sent to go bring Bathsheba to him after he had seen her from his rooftop. And Joab, his general, who was assigned the task of making sure that Uriah died in the battle, who else knew what David had done? And so after Uriah was gone, David kind of sighed a sigh of relief. And this is kind of disturbing, but he sent condolences. And he went on with his life as though nothing had happened. And then we're told that when the period of mourning, this is in chapter 11, verse 27, when the period of mourning for Uriah was over, so they were actually mourning for him, David sent for Bathsheba to be brought and brought her to his palace, and she became one of his many wives. And she gave birth to a son. David got away with it. 
It was a close call, but he covered his bases well. People would never know what he had done. Bathsheba, the beautiful woman he had been intrigued with in the first place, was now available to become his wife. Talk about coming out on top in every way. People's sin does pay. Well, not exactly. Chapter 11 ends with a really ominous verse. It says this, But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. How many of you know that God will not ignore sin in his children's lives? David may have covered up his sin from his fellow men, but we're told that the Lord saw it. The Lord wasn't pleased with it. David wasn't thinking about what the author of Hebrews said, that everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. He is the one to whom we are all accountable. And God loves his children way too much to let them get away with secret sin. And so this morning I want to talk about what God will do with the sin in our lives. First thing then, it's important to understand that God wants us to face our sin. There are three things I notice about sin as I observe David. First of all, our sin is a crime against man. Now, not all sin is, but a lot of our sin is definitely directed at another person. When Joab had reported Uriah's death to David, David's only comment was, well, tell Joab, don't be too discouraged. <laughs> you lost a couple in battle, right? He says, the sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. And then he tells him, you know, fight harder next time and conquer the city. In other words, that's the nature of war. People die in war, but... Be more careful next time that you don't lose men and make sure you do it the right way. And for about a year after Uriah died, David hid his sin from everyone. David's not taken any responsibility for his actions. He, he does not acknowledge that what he has done is a hideous offense against a fellow man. He doesn't feel awful about the injustice of his actions. David's so consumed with his feelings, you know, the feelings of desire he had for Bathsheba and then the feelings of fear about being found out after he had done what he had done. He, he, he didn't have time to really think deeply about his sin. And he didn't seem to really care. It, it's hard to put ourselves in somebody else's shoes when... We're so focused on what we want in life. And so we're told that God sends the prophet Nathan to David to help him understand what he's done. R.C. Phillips points out that there's some irony in how chapter 12 starts. It begins with the statement, the Lord sent. <laughs> Up to this point, David's been doing all the sending. Throughout chapter 11, he sent Joab and his army uh, to battle without him. In chapter 11, verse 3, he sent and inquired about the woman he saw bathing on her rooftop, Bathsheba. In verse 4, he sent messengers to bring her to himself. 
In verse 6, he told Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite home from the battle so I can convince him to go home and be with his wife so that he will think that the child is his. In verses 14 and 15, he sent Joab a letter through the hand of Uriah ordering Uriah's death in battle. And in verse 27, he, when it's all over, he sends for Bathsheba and brings her to himself. David's done all the sending up until this time, but this time it's the Lord who sends. <laughs> There's a shift in the narrative when it says the Lord sends. And God sends Nathan to expose David's sin. We're told in verse 1 that the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. The story was that there's two men in a certain town. One is rich and one is poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb that he had bought. He raised the little lamb and grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled the, it in his arms like a baby daughter. This is the household pet. One day, we're told, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. And the proper thing to do if a guest arrives at your house is to put on a meal. But we're told, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, the rich man took the poor man's little lamb away and killed it and prepared it for his guest. Now David, when he heard this, was furious. He says, as surely as the Lord lives, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. <laughs> he must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. Now, why would a, a story like this be brought to the king in the first place? Well, it helps to understand the king's role in Israel. The king not only ruled the people, he was also their judge. People would bring the difficult cases to him. If the lower courts couldn't handle it, they would bring it to the king. And in Israel at this time, you didn't have a separation of powers like you have in America. In those days, you didn't have an executive branch and a judicial branch. The king was the highest court in Israel. He was the supreme court of Israel. And one of the king's jobs was to rule on cases and come up with a fair verdict. And this story seems to bring a very strong reaction out of David. When Nathan says, in effect, King, what should be done to this rich man who's taken advantage of his poor neighbor? David makes this judgment. He says, one of the things that should be done, and it fits perfectly within the Mosaic law, he says, the man who did this must pay for the lamb four times over because of what he did. And that's what the law says. That's what it requires. In the Old Testament, we're told in Exodus 22.1, if somebody steals an ox or a sheep and then kills it and sells it, the thief must pay back five oxen for each ox that was stolen and four sheep for each sheep that was stolen. So if you took a sheep away from somebody and robbed them, you were required to make restitution and it was supposed to be four sheep for the one you took. But David doesn't stop there. This man's abuse of power makes him really angry. In fact, we're told that David was furious. And he says, as surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. 
Now, this is the supreme judge of the land saying this. Since when is stealing a lamb a capital offense? That's excessive. There's nothing in the Mosaic laws that says if you steal a cow or a sheep or a lamb or a goat or anything, that it's a capital offense. Even if it's cruel. The Mosaic law doesn't make that a capital crime. But David is over the top. He's furious. He wants this man killed. Why? David sees much more than mere property offense here. This wasn't just a poor man taking something from somebody else because he needed. This was a rich man taking advantage of his position in life to steal something from a poor man, something he had a lot of. There's an attitude beneath this act, a heartlessness, a cruelty that David couldn't stand. The rich man had all the flocks and herds he wanted. He had many, but the poor man only had this one lamb, this pet lamb. He had raised this lamb in his home. It grew up with his children. They loved the little lamb. And David has an acute sense of justice, and he can't bear the thought that there would be a man out there who would take such advantage of his neighbor and get away with an act like this. David had been a shepherd himself. He was affectionate toward the lambs he was with. And David saw himself as a supreme ruler of the land, the shepherd of the people. He was a defender of the weak, an upholder of justice. And so he says, this man should be judged for having no pity. Verse 6. He's angry over the ruthlessness of the rich man's crime against the poor neighbor and unequal who couldn't defend himself. And Nathan had David right where he wanted him and right where God wanted him. And then Nathan said to David, you are the man. I can't imagine the shock David felt at that moment. Nathan sucker punched him. David's speechless. Nathan could have just come to David and said, God told me what you did. I know what you've done. You're a liar, a murderer, an adulterer, but that wouldn't have been near as effective as what he did here. Instead of calling David's sin out, which would have made David defensive and probably angry at Nathan, Nathan knows that nobody sins like David without spinning a web around it of rationalizations and defense mechanisms and self-deceptions. So Nathan got David to declare judgment on his own sin. (laughs) David has hidden his sin so well it seems to have even been hidden from him. And when the prophet told David the story, David didn't even associate the story with himself. How blind could he be? But that's the nature of sin. Sin always blinds you to the truth. We're quick to rationalize our sin, quick to defend our actions. Many of us don't see our sin near as seriously as God sees it. How many of you know it's always easier to see somebody else's sin than your own? And David completely put his sin out of mind. Charles Swindoll says, you know, when somebody, he says, somebody described the way people handle guilt by using the picture of a warning light on the dashboard of a car. He says, as you're driving along, the warning light flashes on saying, take notice, there's trouble under the hood. He says, and at that moment you have a choice. 
You can stop the car, get out, open the hood, and see what's wrong. Or you can get a hammer out of the glove compartment and knock the light out with the hammer. He says, no one's going to know the difference for a while until your motor burns up. He says, and then you'll look back and realize what a stupid decision it was to break the light out of the dashboard. He says, but Christians are carrying hammers with them all the time in the glove compartment of their conscience. And when the light of guilt begins to flash, they bring the hammer out and knock the light out. They call it false guilt. They say everybody else is doing it. They have all kinds of rationalizations. And and all the while, their internal motor is burning up. And somewhere down the road, they're going to look back and realize what a foolish decision it was not to stop, look deeper, and come to terms with what was wrong inside them. Most of us don't see the seeds of sin in us before we fall. Most of us don't pay attention to the warning signals that we've been given. We use a hammer to knock the warning light out. We ignore what's going on in us. We don't take it seriously. We tell ourselves, you know, I'm not really that bad. Other people may fall in big ways. I won't. These little seeds of sin aren't going to grow into anything. There was one of the old Puritan writers by the name of John Owen, and he used to say this. He says, be killing sin or it be killing you. In other words, take your sin seriously before it takes root. Timothy Keller said this, you know, he says, it's easier to throw away an acorn than it is to get rid of an oak tree. He says, you're putting up with fantasies of revenge in your life or your or fan, uh, sexual fantasies or you're, you're putting up with jealousy or envy and it's poisoning your heart or you have enormous self-absorption about how you look or what you have and, and you're putting up with all kinds of stuff which in the right circumstances can grow into terrible things and he says, be killing sin or it be killing you. In other words, don't tolerate these little things in your life. Don't, don't think the, the seeds of sin are not a big deal. David seems to have been pretty effective at pushing the sin against Uriah out of his mind thinking, you know, I'm the king, I deserve things. But how many of you here know that God cares as much about Uriah as he does David? He cares as much about the little guy as he does the big guy. The fact is, if I understand the scripture right, he cares even more sometimes. He's a champion of those who are weak. Didn't Jesus announce his ministry this way, saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. <laughs> he has he sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to captives, to recover the sight of the blind, to set liberty, set at liberty those who are bruised. You know, Jesus is the champion of the underdog, the oppressed, the victims of injustice. He's the defender of the weak, the upholder of justice. And when a person takes advantage of another person, even if it's his child doing it, he sees it and he won't let them get away with it. Our sins are an offense against another person. So secondly, then we're told our sin is an offense against God. Look carefully at what God says to David through Nathan the prophet. In verse 9, he says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? What he did was that he was despising the word of the Lord by doing it. And he says, And done this horrible deed. He says in verse 10, You despise me. That's God. 
by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. And in verse 14, he says, you have shown utter contempt to the Lord by doing this. David's sin is clearly not only against Uriah, it's also against God. Not that he hasn't sinned against other people as well, but his chief wickedness was his offense against God. You know, when I, when I read this, I stop and think about it, and I say, how is that true, you know? Isn't this primarily a sin against Uriah? Why would you call a sin committed against another person a sin against God? You know, when somebody steals or murders or slanders, isn't it the other person who's the victim? Why say the sin was against God? Well, it's important to understand that before we ever sin against our fellow men, we've already sinned against God. We sin against God when we know what his word says and we choose to ignore it. We sin against God by spurning his name and giving his enemies opportunity to blaspheme him. In verse 12, God says, you showed utter contempt for me. We sin against God when we make ourselves the gods, gods and, and answer only to ourselves. We sin against God when we show by our actions that he hasn't done enough for us. We're ungrateful for what he's done, that we need something more than what he's given us, and we're not content. David's sin wasn't only against Bathsheba and Uriah, however. It was against the Lord, and the Lord God says to Israel, of Israel says this to David. He says, I anointed you king of Israel. I saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you the master's house and his wife's and kingdom, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. I gave all this to you. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done something that's so directly against what I have told you is right and done this horrible deed? You murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and you've stolen his wife and from this time on your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. God makes it clear that the only reason David was in the position of power he was was because God had put him there. And God put him there to give him the responsibility to represent him. He took the kingdom away from Saul because Saul was not representing him well, and he gave it to David, a man after his own heart. God had blessed David greatly. He had given him success in battles. David had acquired great wealth. But instead of feeling unworthy of God's gifts, instead of feeling undeserving of God's blessings, he began to feel entitled. And he sinned violently against Uriah and his wife after God had delivered him from violence, often in answer to his desperate prayers. David had forgotten what it was like to be weak and dependent on grace above all. Like the rich man in the parable, David had more than he could ever want more than he needed, especially when it came to women in his life. It's evident from verse 8 that when he assumed Saul's position as king, he also claimed his household and he got all of his harem as well. So in addition to all the wives he had, he got all of Saul's wives as well. And this reference isn't an endorsement for David's multiplication of wives. We talked last week how God had told them not to do that when they became king. But rather, it's a simple recognition of the fact that he did not need to take this man's only wife. 
He had been blessed in a way few others had been blessed. He had been promised a glorious destiny. He had been given blessings that a man like Uriah would never know in his entire lifetime. But David wasn't satisfied with all God had done for him. He wasn't satisfied with all that God had given him. He wasn't satisfied with God alone. He wanted something more. And he clearly wanted something that was off limits. And that means he was ungrateful to God. And not only had he broken the commandment not to commit adultery. We talked last week about he committed, he broke several other commandments too. And I count at least seven of the 10 that he broke. The uh, commandment not to have any gods before God. The commandment not to take the name of the Lord in vain because he slandered the God's name among the people. Not to murder, not to commit adultery, not to steal, not to bear false witness, not to covet. All these commandments are broken by David. And you gotta understand this, David's role in the kingdom was to uphold the law. And instead, he violated God's laws in the worst possible way. This was a great offense against God. It was a slap in God's face. And Nathan points this out. And when he does, David doesn't defend himself. David immediately acknowledges his sin. In Psalm 51, he confesses to the Lord against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Then listen to this. You will be proved right in what you say. Your judgment against me is just. Whatever you do to me because of what I've done is just. That's repentance, people. Our sins hurt others, but ultimately they offend God because sin in any form is rebellion against God's way of living. You know, when you're, you're tempted to do wrong, remember, you're going to be sinning against God. And for a year, David had tried to hide his sin from the Lord, but, the, but God saw his sin the whole time. David might have been there with his head under the covers, <laughs> but he was in God's view the whole time. It was all out in the open, and God calls him out. Thirdly, then, our sin is destructive to ourselves. You know, early in the sermon, I said, David won. He got away with it. His sin didn't catch up with him. He, he, he was on top, you know. But the year spent in hiding from God was a desert for him. Psalm 30, in Psalm 32, he describes this period of time in his life. He says, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away. I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Does that sound like he's having fun? Now, this might seem overly simplistic, but I thought the reason that we sin is we want to make ourselves happy. Last week I said too many Christians are too fond of sin to enjoy Christianity. We think happiness is always found in getting what we want when we want it, but experience teaches us just the opposite. True happiness is found in living for God. Happiness is found in giving our lives to him. After all, we were created by him, redeemed by him, provided for, for by him, loved by him, blessed by him. True happiness comes from recognizing who we are in relationship to him. We were created for intimacy with God. And like Adam and Eve in the garden, when we sin, intimacy with God is the first thing that goes because we hide from him. Instead of running from him, we hide from him. And that's why the first five verses, words in this chapter are words of such grace. Listen to these words of grace again. The Lord sent Nathan. People, that's grace. Grace. 
God loved David too much to let him continue down this road, so he sent his prophet Nathan to confront him. Now, I've got to move fast just to sum up some things here, but God wants us to see our sin for what it is, but secondly, he wants us to embrace his grace. In verse 13, we're told that then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord, and Nathan replied, Yes, but God has forgiven you, and you won't die for this sin. David had declared what the punishment for a sin like that should be when he said the person must die, and, and Nathan says, God's going to forgive you, and you're not going to die for this sin. Now think about that for a second. David had committed adultery, but not just adultery. He had also murdered a man. And David had murdered a man, but not just a man. He murdered a number of people because in the battle when Joab sent the group of people to the front lines so that they would be killed, it wasn't just Uriah that died, but it was several other elite soldiers as well. They all sacrificed their lives to help David cover up his sin. So Uriah and other people had to die. So it wasn't just the murder of a man. It wasn't just the adultery. It wasn't even all the people who died because David was trying to cover his butt. David was also given the responsibility of making sure this kind of stuff doesn't happen. That was his role. So David had given up his role. He's triply guilty, guiltier than anybody else could have been if they had done this. And yet God comes and says to Nathan, the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. Is that unfair? How can God pardon no matter how bad you've been. How can he pardon those kinds of sins? The worst of sins. What well, gets even more confusing after this, this is the passage concludes with David's infant son suffering death because of the sin of his father. We're told in verse 15 that Nathan returned to his home and the Lord sent a deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's wife. And David begged God to spare the child. He went without food and he lay all night on the ground crying out to God. He's brokenhearted and he, he begs and he pleads with God to spare his son. But God takes the baby anyway, the baby that was born to David and Bathsheba. In a sense, an innocent child suffered the death that David deserved. You say, that's not fair. David was guilty, not him. You know the real truth? David would later be saved by the substitutionary death of another one of his offsprings, and that wasn't fair either. Jesus Christ, David's greater son, would suffer the death, a death to bear the sins of David, along with your sins and my sins, the sins of all of us, so that we can go free. So we wouldn't have to pay the price for our own sin. He became our substitute. He died in our place, the death that we deserved. If we're tempted to think that God is severe in requiring the death of David's son through Bathsheba, and we can't understand all that God does, but I do know this, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, so this baby's with God. But we don't understand how God plays everything out, but we have to remember God didn't exempt himself from this. Remember that the son, his son, gave up his life 
so we wouldn't have to lose our high lives. That's the good news of the gospel. We stand before God as sinners just like David did. No matter how much you have sinned, no matter how big your sin is, you may face some consequences of the sin, but you are no longer under guilt when you confess your sin to God because he is faithful to forgive you your sins and deliver you from unrighteousness. Jesus is our Passover lamb, the one whose blood is sprinkled on our life so God won't destroy us. But to get the benefit of his death, we have to confess our sin like David did. And if we do, God promises that through the blood of his son, we will be free to live. Isaiah described Jesus this way. He says he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We're all guilty in God's eyes. We we have left God's path to follow our own, yet God has laid on him the sins of us all. We have a substitute who will die in our place and take our guilt from us. That's the message of the Bible. Timothy Keller says, I remember someone who was challenging my Christian beliefs once, and they said to me, in your Bible, all the good guys are bad guys. Look at Abraham and David and Joseph and Peter. There's no good examples in your Bible. In other words, this discredits your beliefs. Keller tells us this person showed by what he said that he missed the whole point of the Bible. His presupposition was that the Bible and Christianity are about how you should live your life so God will bless you and then you can go to heaven. That's not the point of the Bible. If you think that's the point of the Bible, you've missed it. Here's the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible is that God continually and persistently works with and gives grace to people who don't deserve it. It's not fair. And often they don't even appreciate it once they get it. The point of the Bible is the best people have ever lived have not and will not and cannot cannot overcome their own sin and failure and self-centeredness. David was about as good as you can get in terms of a person, and yet he fell, fell in the worst way possible. The message of the Bible, if you cling to God, it's grace. You will triumph. That's the point of the Bible. When David finally confessed his sin, all the consequences were gone. The guilt was gone. He was free from the guilt of his sin. There is nothing that you could do that you can't be free of, the guilt of, with just a confession. Because it's God who saves the unworthy. It took David a year to come clean. Took a surprise pregnancy, the death of a soldier, the persuasion of a preacher, the probing of God pressing against him, but David's heart finally softened. He confessed. He says, I've sinned against the Lord, and God did with his sin what he wants to do with yours and mine. He put it away, and it was gone. As far as the east is from the west, the Lord has removed your guilt from you if you've confessed your sin and come clean before God. People, that's good news. That's really good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
the hymn says that we're given grace that is greater than all of our sins. And we think our sins are so big that God could never forgive us, that, that our sins are too big for his grace. Our sins are not too big for God's grace. His grace is greater than all of our sins. And so, Father, if there's anyone here today living with secret sin or hiding sin in their hearts, may they come clean to you. May they not knock the, the warning signal off the dashboard of their conscience, Lord, but may they bring it to you, do some soul searching, and let you penetrate their lives and help them overcome this sinfulness. But before even they do that, may they find your covering for their sin and forgiveness of their sin because it's because of what Jesus has done that we can stand clean before our God even if we have sinned. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Follow us on social media to keep up to date with church news and events.